Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, well, good morning. My name is Andrew Brown. If you don't know me, I am the youth director here at New Life. And today I'm going to be continuing a series on the book of James entitled The Undivided Life. And how this works, if you weren't here last time, is that every opportunity I get to preach, I'll be working through the next section in the book of James. So last time I preached, we covered uh, verses 1 through 12, looking at the topic of trials. And today we're going to pick it up in verse 13, looking at the topic of temptations. Now, whenever I think of temptation, the first non-biblical story that comes to my mind is the Island of Sirens in the Odyssey by Homer. If you're unfamiliar with this story, Ulysses, who is sometimes also known as Odysseus, just depending upon which translation you read, but Ulysses is sailing home with his men after war. But unfortunately for them, to get home, they're going to have to pass by the Island of Sirens. The Sirens were these, these beautiful creatures who used their voices to lure passing ships to their destruction. When men would hear the siren songs, they would would feel this almost irresistible urge to follow the voice and to get closer and closer and closer until eventually they either jumped overboard to their death or they crashed their ship upon the rocks. Now, Ulysses, he knew that they would have to pass by this island, and he knew that the temptation to listen to the siren's song would be too great to resist. So what he did was he put wax in, all, in the ears of all of his men so that they could not hear the voice of the sirens and be led astray. But Ulysses did something unique as well. He didn't put wax in his own ears. Instead, he asked the men to tie him to the mast of the ship so that as they passed by the island of the sirens, he would be able to hear their voice, but he would not be able to follow after them. I think this story gives us a great picture of temptation. Ulysses wants something that he knows he should not have. He is drawn to something that he knows will destroy him. And I'm sure we can all relate with this situation. Just like Ulysses, we all know what it's like to want something that is forbidden. We all know what it's like to be enticed by something that we know will destroy us. And that's what temptation is. Temptation is any enticement to evil, any enticement to evil, anything that seeks to draw your heart and your mind away from obedience to the Lord. And we face temptations like this, enticements to evil, every single day. A pastor named Clarence McCarthy, McCartney says it this way, In every circumstance of life, every lot, every association, every labor, every pleasure or hardship, there is a possible temptation. There are temptations for the body, for the mind, for the soul, There are temptations to the appetite, to selfishness, to dishonesty, to the evasion of duty, the disregard of others' rights, indifference to others' sorrows, pride, sloth, envy, and the subtle but even more dangerous temptations to doubt and unbelief. 
In this fallen world, temptations are an unavoidable part of life. But unlike Ulysses, we can't just tie ourselves down and sail past them. Our temptations are ever before us. But thankfully, God in his word, he has given us wisdom to overcome our temptations and to live lives of undivided allegiance to King Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning from the book of James. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it and turn to the book of James. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you, either a blue or white Bible. And the passage we're going to look at today is on page 586, looking at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? James 1, 13 through 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts as we listen to your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading this passage or not, uh, but James gives only two commands here, only two commands, and both of these commands are negative. So when thinking about temptation, James wants us to know what not to do. There are many places in Scripture that show us what to do in, in the midst of temptation. Thinking of Jesus in the wilderness is a, probably a pretty good place to start there. But that's not James's focus here. He shows us two things we don't do in the midst of temptation. And the first is we don't blame God for temptation. We don't blame God for temptation. Look at verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You know, there is something um, both personal and universal about temptation. It's universal in that we all experience it. That's why James says here, when you are tempted. He doesn't say if you are tempted, but when you are tempted. But there's also something personal in that we all experience temptation in different ways. What tempts you may not tempt me and also vice versa. But the truth that James wants us to see here is that no matter how we experience temptation, we should never conclude that God is the one enticing us that God is tempting us to evil. Now, when thinking about temptation, this is a really fascinating place to begin. And it shows us that James's primary concern here is not with us. James's primary concern is not with us. His primary concern is with God. James wants to protect the glory of God's name because he understands that when we, when we think and we speak falsely of God like this, we dishonor him. 
We rob him of his absolute holiness and his purity. When we think that God entices people to evil, we make God into something that he is not. And that's what James wants to guard against. And the reason for that that he says is because that's not what God is like. God himself tempts no one. Now, if you know your Bible well, um, when you hear that, you might, you know, raise an eyebrow just a little bit. God tempts no one? Really? What about in Genesis 22, where uh, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Genesis 22 says it this way, after these things, God tested, or in the King James Version, God tempted Abraham. Or maybe your mind went to the Lord's Prayer. Don't we pray to God? Don't we ask God, God, lead us not into temptation? How can James say that God doesn't tempt anyone? Well, the key word here is with evil. God does not tempt anyone with evil. You see, it's really um, interesting about this passage is that the Greek word, root word for temptation is the same Greek word that James uses for trials. So whenever you see trials or testing in James, it's the same Greek word as temptation. And so that means we have to use the context to determine which of these two meanings is intended. But also there's something else. We also need to know that temptation hasn't always meant an enticement to evil the way we think about it today. J.I. Packer, he explains this by saying this. The biblical idea of temptation is not primarily of seduction, as in modern usage, but of making trial of a person, of putting him to the test, which may be done for the benevolent purpose of proving his quality, as well as with the malicious purpose of showing up his weakness or trapping him into wrong action. So what this means is that the same situation in life can be used by both God and Satan. For example, something inappropriate pops up on your computer screen. God allows that situation into your life to test you and to grow your faith. But Satan is using the same situation to destroy you, to entice you to evil and to try and get you to sin. This double-sided nature of temptation led John Owen to say, temptation is like a knife. It may either cut the meat or cut the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. And so when James says here that God tempts no one, he means God tempts no one with evil. God brings different situations into our lives, not as opportunities for sin, but as opportunities for growth. Now, we have to pause here and say, what's the point of this? Is this just about being theologically precise? And I don't think that is the case. I think James warns us about this because he understands us. He's one of us, after all. He's a human being, and so he understands what it's like. He understands that we have this tendency, when things, goes, when things go wrong, we have this tendency to start to, to look for someone else to point the finger at to look to someone else to shift the blame to. So, for instance, in my own life, I might get angry at my house. I might yell or might, I don't know, lash out some capacity. And, and when, once I calm down and I'm done with it, I might go and talk to my wife and I say, you know, if the, if the kids would just obey, uh, if, I, if I wasn't under so much stress at work, or if I didn't have this headache right now, 
then these things wouldn't have happened. But do you see what I'm doing there? I'm blaming my sin on something or someone other than myself. It's everybody else's fault except mine. And you know, human beings, we actually have a long history of this kind of blame shifting. Look back at Genesis 3. God said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see the blame shifting going on there? Adam blames the woman and Eve blames the serpent. But notice who else Adam blames his sin on. It's not just the woman, but it's the woman you gave me, God. He's not just blaming Eve, he's blaming God. God, it's your fault. If you didn't make Eve, then none of this would have happened. Adam is refusing to take responsibility for his own sin, and he is instead blaming God. You know, the thing is, we might look back at Adam and, and think negatively, but I think we do this exact same thing. In fact, I think every time we blame shift for our sin or for our temptation, we're really just blaming God. Think back to the example I just used a, a minute ago. It's the kids, if they would just obey. But which kids? It's the kids you gave me, God. It's the stress at my work. Well, it's the stress, God, that you gave me at my work. It's the headache, God, that you gave me. And I think this tendency to blame God is what James is talking about in verse 13. Don't blame God when you're tempted. Don't make it seem like it's his fault that you want evil. Don't say things like, if God wouldn't have given me these desires, or if, if God wouldn't have put me in those situations. God is not trying to trip you up. That's not what God is like, so don't blame him for your temptations. Instead, James is going to show us where we should place the blame, and that's by turning inward. Look what he says in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we shouldn't blame God for our temptations, but we see here that we really shouldn't even blame Satan. The idea that the devil made me do it is not really an option. Yes, Satan does tempt, but ultimately it's our own evil desires that lead us astray. Puritan Thomas Brooks, he said it this way, Satan has only a persuading slight, but not an enforcing might. He may tempt us, but without ourselves he cannot conquer us. He may entice us, but without ourselves he cannot hurt us. Our hearts carry the greatest stroke in every sin. Satan can never undo a man without himself, but a man may easily undo himself without Satan. So this shows us that temptation can be experienced in two different ways. Sometimes you experience temptation externally, meaning that someone else is enticing you to sin, whether that's your friends, your family, the society you live in, Satan, whoever it might be, temptation is coming from out there. You can't experience temptation that way. But James is showing us here that you can also experience temptation internally, meaning that you desire what God has forbidden. You are lured and enticed by it. And now the temptation is not coming from out there, but is coming from your own heart. Now this is a very, very important distinction to make because it means that temptation is not always sinful. When you are 
externally tempted only, you have not sinned. You can't control everything that's going on out there, and God does not hold you responsible for what other people do. And we know this because Jesus himself was tempted but never sinned. Hebrews 4.11 says it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus experienced a myriad of temptations in his life. But these temptations, they never arose from inside of his own heart. He was never lured and enticed by evil. Jesus never desired sin. Now, let me just give you an example of kind of how that works. If you think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan first tempted him to turn stones into bread. And if you remember that story, you remember that Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. So you can imagine he is very, very hungry. But that doesn't mean he desired the bread that Satan was offering there. Yes, he wanted bread. Yes, he was hungry. Almost no doubt about it. But he did not want that bread in that way at that time. Jesus had no desire for what God has forbidden. And he resisted Satan's temptation. So temptation, this means, is not always sin. And again, I say that's really, really important to know. But that doesn't mean that temptation is never sin. In fact, with us, a lot of times, temptation is sinful. We are lured and enticed by our own evil desires, and the desire for evil is evil. You see, unlike Jesus, we have indwelling sin. We have a sinful nature that is bent on rebelling against God. And this nature is constantly waging war against us, enticing us to evil in countless ways. A pastor named Sam Alberry, he says about our nature, uh, this about our nature. There is something deeply profound about our human nature, for we are both agent and victim of our desires. The desires are our own, from our own hearts, yet it is us that they entice and attack. Within each of us, there is this deep tension. We really are our own worst enemies. So this means that when we experience internal temptation, when a sinful desire arises in our hearts, we need to take responsibility for it. Even if this temptation arose out of the corruption of our own nature and not necessarily by our own choice, we still need to grieve over this temptation and to war against it. And James is going to warn us why we need to do that. Because if we don't, this sinful desire will eventually lead to a sinful deed. And that's what he's talking about in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is often more than just an individual action. It's a process where one rebellion leads to another. It's kind of like a snowball effect. And left unchecked, our sinful desires will eventually lead to sinful deeds, which will eventually lead to death. There's a downward spiral that James is describing here from desire to disobedience to death. Now, thankfully, this process can be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit, but the change must go all the way to the bottom, even deeper than our desires. 
And that leads us to the second thing James warns us about when facing temptation. Don't be deceived by temptation. Don't blame God for your temptations and don't be deceived by temptation. This is where he starts in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In the midst of temptation, we often shift the, shift the blame and take the bait because we've already been deceived. We already believe a lie about who God is and what he is like. Think back to the very first temptation. Bob already read this. We'll read a part of it again. Adam and Eve in the garden. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that, there was tr that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So God has placed this forbidden tree in the garden as an opportunity for Adam and Eve to obey him and to demonstrate their love for him. But again, Satan uses the same opportunity to deceive. Satan lied to Adam and Eve about God's goodness. He told them that the tree was really a sign that God was withholding something from them, that God was being selfish here. And now if they would just follow their own desires, if they would just eat the fruit that they desire, then they would find true happiness. Satan deceived Adam and Eve into believing a lie and they took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. But notice, they fell for this lie not just because they wanted what God had forbidden, but also because they forgot the truth about who God is. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis, he has his chief demon write to one of his understudies, and he, he says this, and I think this is profound. It is funny how mortals always picture us demons as putting things into their mind. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If the truth about God was in the mind and the hearts of Adam and Eve, then the temptation to sin would have lost its power. And that's why James, after warning us, do not be deceived, he then goes on to describe truth about God, to tell us who God is and what he is like. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James wants us to see that God gives good things. Every single thing in your life that is good comes from your good Father. God won't give you evil because God is constant and unchanging. In him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. God will not give you good today and then decide, I'm going to change my mind tomorrow. I'm going to start giving them evil tomorrow. That's not possible. It's not in God's nature to do that. You know, our nature overflows with evil, but God's nature overflows with good. So we shouldn't be deceived into thinking God is tempting us to evil because God does not give his children evil. He gives us good. But also, we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that God is withholding good from us. God has given us everything. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously 
give us all things. See what those verses are saying? We should never doubt if God is giving us good because he's already given us the greatest good possible. He gave us his one and only son and he gave Jesus to be crucified for our sins, to pay the penalty for the countless times that we have fallen into temptation and we have given in to sin. But now, because of that, because God gave his one and only son, then it doesn't make any sense for God to withhold lesser goods from us. That's what verse 32 means there. If God gave us Jesus, how could he not give us lesser things? That would be like me saying, I just bought a brand new car, and I'm going to give it to you for free. And then when you come up to take it, I say, wait, 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 wait. You can't have that air freshener. i got to have that. You can't have that. That's too important for me. That's what it's like when we think that God gave us Jesus, but he won't give us other good things in life. God only gives us good. That's his nature. So if you're a child of God, no matter what is going on in your life, you can have confidence that the good father is giving you good because he already gave you the greatest good. And when you remember this, when you remember what you deserve for your own sin, and then you think about what you get instead, you think about all the times you have sinned, all the times you've fallen into temptation, and then you say, instead of getting curse and damnation and condemnation from God, I get to be in relationship with him. I get to have my sins forgiven. I get to know Jesus. When you think about those things, that gives you incredible power to resist temptation. You see, ultimately, to say no to temptation requires that we say yes to something better, something more beautiful, something more satisfying. Saying yes to Jesus is really the only way to ultimately say no to temptation. And you know, this point can be seen from another story in Greek mythology. You see, Ulysses, he wasn't the only one to sail by the island of the Sirens. I don't know if you know this story or not, but when Jason and the Argonauts went in the search of the Golden Fleece, they also had to endure the temptation from the sirens' songs. But Jason, he responded to this temptation very differently than Ulysses did. Because on board Jason's ship was a master musician named Orpheus. And when the ship sailed past the sirens, Orpheus began to play a song that was so satisfying that the crew had no desire for the music of the sirens. They sailed by in peace, captivated by a better song. May that be true of us as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to say yes to Jesus. We want to say no to temptation. We want to be captivated by your better song. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would strengthen us by your spirit to resist temptation, but you would also strengthen us to enjoy you, to love you, and to believe and cherish what is true about you, that you are good. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we close our service this morning, singing, Come Thou Found.